Okay, I thought you'd need a little humor. Beginning of the service today. Uh, our, our theme for this series is God Never Said That. And uh, today we're going to look at, at one of those uh, common statements that everybody believes uh, is biblical. And the fact is that life seems to include difficult seasons. Uh, the chances are pretty good that you're either about to go into a difficult season in life, uh, or you're in the middle of a difficult season, or you're just now coming out of a difficult season in your life. Now, I realize that, having said that, that doesn't sound very encouraging, uh, but it's truth, and we need to face up to the truth. You know, every time you turn around, life can get complicated rather quickly. Whenever that happens and life starts spiraling down, it's amazing how fast it seems like there's more than we can handle. Some of you right now are going through a lot. Could be a financial situation. Could be a, you or a loved one got a bad report from the doctor. Um, or it could be that you have a relationship blowing up. Maybe your job is not as stable as it once was. Perhaps you're battling depression or any number of other things. The weight gets heavier and heavier, and finally you think, I just can't take any more of this. Then some well-meaning Christian gives you the advice, oh, don't worry. Uh, whenever God closes the door, he always opens a window, as the lady said uh, on, on the video clip. Well, what does that mean? Well, if, if you're on the 12th floor, I'd be a little concerned about that. Uh, or some people would say, well, remember, God always helps those who help themselves. No, God didn't say that either. Uh, but the saying I want to deal with today is, don't worry. Remember, God will never give you more than you can handle. I want to go to the passage of Scripture where this, this belief or this doctrinal statement comes from. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul is writing here, and he says, and I want you to notice, no temptation. Okay, the subject is temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted, goes back to temptation, beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So the subject is temptation. Um, it's not God giving us more than we can handle. It is temptation. Now, it would seem then that this passage is either misunderstood, uh, misquoted, or misapplied. Now, I have to be upfront with you and honest, I have taught this for years and years and years in my ministry in, in all good faith. But upon studying this passage uh, more closely, uh, I, I found out that I had accepted a belief that was pretty common 
uh, across Christianity, but in fact uh, is not accurate. Uh, this verse does not say that God will, give, will not give us more than we can handle. In fact, if we survey the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, we see story after story of people who had more than they could handle. Okay, so which refutes this whole idea. For instance, in um, Judges, Gideon said, I am the weakest in my clan. I'm the least in my family. God, I don't have what it takes to do what you want me to do. Now, Gideon was being very humble. Uh, I've read the account, and, and I really think he was being honest. I don't think he was trying to get out of doing anything. I think this is the way he perceived his abilities. <clears throat> Moses said, I'm slow of speech. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good leader. These people are wearing me out. You remember on the way from Egypt up to the Promised Land, Jethro, his father-in-law, had to intervene. He said, I can't do it all. I don't have what it takes. And once again, I, I don't really think Moses was trying to get out of anything. I think this is his honest uh, assessment of himself and his abilities or lack thereof. Esther said, I'm very afraid. Now, Esther was in a situation where she was called upon by God uh, to save the Jewish people. Now, you know, all of us are alarmed and should be at the Holocaust um, back in the 40s, but uh, here was a time when the, the entire Jewish population was about to be annihilated. And so, you know, Esther, I'm very afraid. In Psalm 38, um, here's, some, here's some confession of David. Now, David, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. David got himself into some pretty serious trouble. And uh, you recall the story, he saw Bathsheba uh, bathing, and he called for her, had sex with her, she got pregnant, he called for her husband to come home uh, from the battlefield, thinking that, okay, if he, if he goes in and sleeps with her, then it'll look like the baby's his, not mine. And uh, he wouldn't do it because he was a man of integrity. He said, I can't go into my wife, and all the rest of the Israelites are out on the battlefield fighting. And so David was perplexed, didn't know what to do, so he sent word for uh, her husband to be put on the front lines and then for the army to withdraw um, basically just murdering her husband. And so uh, Nathan the prophet came and confronted David uh, with this sin. And here's what David says after this confrontation. He said, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. It was real guilt. It wasn't just guilt feelings. It was real guilt. Verse 8, he said, I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. And then, stop and think about Jesus. Uh, the Gospels tell us about uh, his state of mind uh, just prior to the time when he was arrested, <clears throat> excuse me, and crucified. And it tells us, and medically this is proven to be accurate, 
He was in such anguish that he was sweating drops of blood. I'm going to guess nobody here has probably sweated drops of blood in that deep of anguish. Maybe there's one or so, but it's a rare, it's a very rare thing. Mark records it this way, chapter 14, verses 33 and 34. He took Peter, that's Jesus, took Peter, James, and John, the inner three, his inner circle, along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He wasn't hanging on a cross yet. This is, this is his psychological state as he's about to be arrested. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Why? This is the big question. Why? Would God allow us to have more than we can handle? Why would he do that? Okay, you know, we, we want to be good to God. We want to say, well, God would never do that to us. We make God out to be the good guy. He is the good guy, uh, but, but we try to help him out, you see. Why would God allow us to have more than we can handle? Now, if you feel like you're under overwhelming weight and pressure thinking that you are about to collapse, then you might want to pay close attention this morning because this message is for you. Now, I really only have two points, so it's, well, I'll start to say it's short, but it may not be short. But anyway, I have two points, uh, shorter than three. Obviously, two is less than three. Uh, God wants us to learn to depend on his presence. Now, when things are going well, people tend to forget about God. Well, you know, everything's going great in your life. You don't need God. What do you need God for? You know, you've got everything under control. And that's how people feel. We know God exists, and we know that at some point in the future, we will need him, but not so much right now. Not necessary. In the backs of our minds, we know a time will come when we'll need God, but things are going so great now, currently there's absolutely no sense of urgency. But when things start going down, we remember God and are reminded that we need Him. Now there's something about flying and being a pastor. How many of you fly? Well, not. How many of you fly on planes? Okay, let me clarify. Okay, a little bit higher. Okay, all right, okay, a good, good amount of you. Now, I don't know what it is about pastors and flying, uh, and this may be true of all people. I'm going to do an unscientific research here uh, in just a moment, but uh, it's like whenever a pastor gets on a plane, the person sitting beside ask, what do you do for a living? Okay? How many of you have been asked by the person seated beside of you, what you do for a living? Let me see. Okay, that's, that's, okay, a substantial number. How many of you have never been asked that? You fly, but you, okay, see, there's the, there's the large, so there is something to it, something about pastors, there's this unseen magnetism uh, that attracts people and they have to ask you uh, what you do for, for a living. Now, m- most of us try to respond 
in such a way as not to lie, uh, but to not tell that we're pastors. Uh, and, and that's because of the experiences that we have after, uh, after telling people that. And I've read about so many pastors who, who have this uh, experience, so it, it just seems to be a, a natural phenomenon. So we try to describe our occupations in a different way. I remember reading uh, one preacher, and he's real famous. You'd know who I'm talking about if I gave you his name. But he told the lady beside of him that he was an author, and he was. He wrote a, he's written a lot of books. Uh, but that, that way he was able to sidestep the question. Well, why, why would we want to sidestep the question? Well, let me explain. There's a reason for that. There are two basic reactions to that question, what do you do for a living? <clears throat> oh, you're a pastor. Well, that's really neat. And they never say another word on the entire flight. <clears throat> okay, that's one reaction. Um, the other is, it's like the person turns into a religious freak. Uh, oh, praise the Lord, brother. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. I'm so thankful that God preordained me to sit next to a man of the cloth because in a moment, this airplane's going to take off and we're going to soar on wings like eagles. Uh, we're going to fly and not be faint. Hallelujah. Where did that come from? You know, um, so this is a case where people go from normal to a religious freak. And so those are the reasons why we typically try to avoid uh, answering the question directly. Well, on one particular flight, a lady asked a pastor that question. And so, you know, he was very conscientious about the fact, so he did not lie, he did not try to cover up exactly what he normally does. And so he told her outright. She said, well, that's fine, as long as you remember two things. One, I'm not a Christian. Okay. Two, I do not want you to convert me on this flight. He agreed. So he said, let's just enjoy the flight together. So he said they actually started uh, a, a real developing good conversation until they hit what he described as turbulence from hell. Okay, some of you don't like to fly because of turbulence. Um, now, remember, she was not a Christian, so she had no reason not to cuss. Okay, keep that in the back of your mind. It was like, he said, it was like she had the gift of cussing. She did, she did apologize for her cussing, but continued on. So he leaned over and asked her, still don't believe in God? She responded, bleep you? No, I don't bleep, bleep, bleep. About 10 minutes later, they were still under the same conditions, this, this severe turbulence. And she said, I don't believe in your bleep, bleep God, but while you're praying you might pray for me too. Well, when life gets difficult, people are suddenly drawn to the presence of God. Uh, now, God could allow us to go through something 
more than we could handle to teach us to depend on His presence, to draw us to call on Him. Uh, We can see the reality of this in the uh, Old Testament story of Jonah. Now, those of you who have been to church all your life, you know the story of Jonah. Uh, God called him and instructed him to go to Nineveh, uh, the capital city, and to preach repentance. Go up and down the streets, you know, repent or God's going to destroy you. Not a popular message, not something that Jonah really wanted to do. So he went down to the wharf, and he got, a, he got on a ship, all right, but he, went, he got on a ship going the opposite direction. Well, uh, out in the sea, uh, the ship got into trouble. Real serious storm. Well, Jonah knew it was his fault. So he told the sailors, it's my fault. You've got to throw me overboard. Well, they did you know, it's like, throw you overboard? You'll die, you know, in this, in this storm. And, you know, he, he wouldn't give up. He said, you've got to throw me overboard. And so they threw him overboard. The Bible says that God prepared a fish. Now, everybody says whale, but the Bible doesn't say whale. Um, so we don't know what kind of fish it was, but God, it says God prepared it. And so this fish swallowed Jonah. And so while he's in the belly of this fish, now, you know, there's probably smaller fish swimming around inside. The stomach of this fish would not be totally filled with water. You know, they're not all water on the inside and all water on the outside where they're swimming. Uh, you know, their stomach would be like yours. There, there, there may be items in there, but there's space too. So he's in there, and it's a large fish, so there's a lot of space. And so, you know, he's trapped. He knows that it's somewhat, unless God steps in, it's somewhat inevitable that he's going to die. So here's what he says, Jonah 2.2. He said, in my distress, he was in distress, Find yourself in the belly of a fish, and you'll call it distress. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me from the depths of the grave. He was a dead man, still alive, but he was on the verge. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You know, we crave God when we are in distress. That's one time that we really reach out to him. And we don't tend to do that in our success, but only in our distress. The challenge for some people is they get in the middle of the storm and then they start to wonder about God. They start to question God. Why is this happening to me? If God was really with me, this would not be happening. Let me give you some advice. Never let the presence of a storm cause you to doubt the presence of God. God wants you to call on Him, and God wants you to sense His presence. You may not know He's there because you've got an issue with your senses. God has promised that He will never leave or forsake us. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So when we seek God, 
he will reveal himself to us. Now, sometimes God allows us to experience more than we can handle for one reason. So that we will be drawn to his presence. To remember his goodness and to lure us into calling on his name. Psalm 23, verse 4. This is David writing here. You remember, you, some of you learned this as a child. You learned it in church camp, or you learned it at vacation Bible school or Sunday school. All of Psalm 23, but let's look at verse 4 only. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's a dear death experience. He says, even though I walk there, even though that's where I am, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's the presence of God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So God wants us to be fully aware of his presence. He's there. He's with you all the time. Whether you sense it or not, he is there. Secondly, God wants us to experience his power. We were created to need God. That's how we're designed. Uh, and to be desperate for him, desperate for a close, intimate relationship with him. When you recognize that God didn't expect you to handle everything by yourself, that's when you experience his power. Too many people are doing life on their own. Okay, I'm doing it my way. You know, I make all my decisions. I'm, I'm in control. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 7. Once again, this is Paul writing. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Okay, so Paul's life was plagued with this, what he calls, a thorn in his flesh. Now, uh, we use the same sort of expression. We usually say a thorn in my side. Uh, but it's saying the same thing. <clears throat> and so no one knows for sure exactly what uh, Paul's thorn was, but it was tormenting, and it was overwhelming to him. Um, he says that he prayed three different times for God to remove it. I don't think that's, he prayed today, he prayed tomorrow, and he prayed the next day. I think it's talking about three different seasons uh, in his life where he's seeking, begging, pleading, and probably fasting. It was an ongoing process and so from, from my perspective, I'm thinking, you know, if God's going to heal anybody, Paul's a really good candidate. You know, this guy wrote the majority of the New Testament. After you get past the four Gospels, which are basically a retelling of the same story, once you get past there, Paul wrote most everything else. So from my human standpoint... I think some people deserve more than others, 
in this situation, based on all that Paul did for God, based on merit, I think, I would say, Paul deserved a response from God. There will come a time when you have a thorn that doesn't go away. You may have one now. You may have one in the future. Like Paul, you're going to ask God, God, please remove this. Why don't you answer my prayer? Can't you make the depression go away? Can't you heal my child of cancer? I hate seeing someone I love suffer so much. Can't you fix my marriage? Can't you turn my teenager back to you? Can't you help me for one month not to be behind financially? You know he can, but he doesn't do it. So you think, why would God allow me to have more than I could handle? Why didn't he just do it when he could? Well, that's exactly where Paul was, you see, in our text. God actually spoke to Paul and said something that is so powerful. It ministers to me at such a deep level, and I hope that it will minister to you as well. Paul's like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you take care of this? Okay, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 12, 2 Corinthians. But he said to me, that's Jesus, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my power, Jesus' power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, okay, now this is Paul speaking again, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Once I come to the conclusion, hey, there's nothing I can do about this, then I'm ready for Jesus to act. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong because the power of Jesus is in my life. Now, I want you to notice God's points in this scripture passage, these two verses. Number one, he says, my grace is all you need. That's his first point. But we come up with this big laundry list of things that we want God to do for us. But God says, my grace is all you need. Second, his second point is my power is made perfect or complete in your weakness, you see, your weakness focuses on my power. It focuses attention on my power. So listen to Paul's crazy talk response. You know, in, in the, the second verse here, verse 10, he says, okay, if that's the case, then I want to boast all the more gladly about all of my weaknesses. He wants Jesus' power to rest on him. So thank God for my weaknesses, for the insults, for the hardships, 
for the beatings, the whippings, being left for dead, uh, and even snake bites. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I tap into a power that goes beyond my human ability to understand. I have a supernatural power of God that makes me strong. I have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in me. Okay, I talked about airplanes. Now I want to talk about boats. Are you sailing or rowing? Think about that. Are you sailing or rowing? Are you moving forward on your own power? That's rowing. Or are you moving forward by the power of God? If God won't give you more than you can handle, then you can make it on your own. You can row and you can make it on your own. The truth is you can do it on your own for a while, but one day you find yourself just not being able to row anymore. You're all worn out. You're frazzled. Step out of yourself into the power of God and let the wind of his spirit sail you along. It doesn't take any effort when you use the wind. I mean, think about this. Would you rather row or would you rather sail? Now, if I'm trying to build muscles, maybe I'd rather row. But you can't do that forever. If I'm on vacation... I'd rather sail, you know, than have to put forth a lot of effort, a lot of work into the thing. If you're hurting today, it's because you're trying to move forward on your own power. You don't have enough power. You are weak. The Bible says he is strong. You have to proceed in his power. In that way, God works his power through your weaknesses. We don't need God when we're having a mountaintop experience. You're up on top of things. We don't need God. Yeah, we can always coast down the mountain. You can always roll down the mountain. But when we're in the valleys, as David described in Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow of death, You're not going to roll up the mountain. It's impossible for us at that point to push ourselves up the mountain on our own power. Well, we were created to need God. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves. When God calls you to do something outside yourself, He will give you more than you can handle so that you can learn to depend on his presence and so that you can experience his power. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and you are not. But we certainly like to think of ourselves as self-sufficient. No, we need God. We need to be weak. We need to be broken. 
We need to depend on him. We can't get it done by ourselves. Look at the text again, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made, my power, God's power, Jesus' power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, help us to take seriously what we've seen in the scripture text today. Father, help us to understand that we're not able to do this, do anything really on our own power, but we need to learn to become uh, more dependent upon you, knowing that you are present, that you are with us at all times, and knowing that it's not by our power, but it is by your power. Help us, Father, to exercise our dependence on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's stand together. We're going to sing uh, our, our final song, and uh, we want you to reflect on things that we have studied today and uh, perhaps your need for change in your life, to become more Christ-like, to make Jesus Lord of your life, whatever. Uh, see me after the service. we be glad to talk to you about any decision you need to make.